Hey, this is Dylan, and welcome to the next episode of Flock of Seagulls. Uh, this week, we watched Exit Wounds, answering the question, how do you make Steven Seagal the best actor in your movie? The answer revealed here, hint though, everyone else is not as good. This is Flock of Seagulls. To the fourth episode of Flock of Seagulls. Four. Or flying by. I'm More Riley. And with me as always is Michael. Michael. Perfect. And uh, uh, we've trained him well. And Dylan. Hey. Yeah. Hey. I'm not saying my name. Uh, exit wounds. Exit yes. wounds. Exit wounds. Exit wounds. Probably the only Steven Seagal film to feature Tim Hortons in the background of a lot of Yes. The that was the very first thing that. I noticed because special they thanks had, to the city of Toronto. Yeah, because it, it's supposed to take place in Detroit. Yes, right. But they start off with the that dude doing that press conference, and then you see the the Roy Thompson yeah. thing with that circular roof, and immediately yes. I was immediately like, oh, codified as Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's especially funny that it was in uh, Toronto because Stevens Gold's like from Michigan, isn't he? So yeah, Detroit would be like his region. metropolitan like region. You'd yeah. figure he'd have some feel for the area. Yeah. Maybe would want to shoot it there, but that was very clearly Toronto. Very clearly Toronto. Well, also I think at this point, 2001 in his career, uh, he probably doesn't have a lot of say over where filming gets to go. This is like his him starting to come back before sliding back into B movies, right? Yeah, I'll say this. This felt like okay. I don't know if this will make sense, but you know how at least with uh, the Gloomer Man and Above the Law, those felt like Steven Seagal vehicles. Mm. Whereas this felt like an action movie that could be played by anyone and it just happened to be played by Steven Seagal. Yeah. I mean, like, the this is an interesting point about, like, it seems like a lot of the earlier stuff, it does seem like it has been rewritten to be a Seagal thing, to fit into his sort of, like, mythos. Yeah. And you're right that, like, yeah, this is probably the first one at least that we've done that really deviates from that. And like, I think as much as I love the Seagal mythos that like, I think this has resulted in the best character that he's done thus far. And I think it also fits into the Seagal mythos. Yeah. The Seagal which, which is crazy to think. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, we're piecing together different elements of this, but like there, uh, I, I, Oh, what, one thing I was going to say right off the bat is this movie looks good. Mm hmm. And it's amazing what 33 million could get you in 2001. Yes. Like you couldn't, there but are it, no the sort budget of was 33 million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. What? Are you sure? Yeah. 25 initially and then 33 with reshoots. Yeah. I mean, the visuals make sense because it's by uh, a cinematographer mm. who switched to directing and I'm going to butcher the name, but I'll try. Oh, actually, I know how to pronounce it. Do it. Barkoviak. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Oh, Andre it's, Barkoviak. Super, it's super phonetic then. So that's good. Yeah, he was like a big cinematographer, a big action cinematographer. Like he's speed, uh, lethal weapon, and like artsy stuff. Like mm -hmm. he he did the cinematography. His first big movie was one of my favorite movies, which is Prince of the City, which is like a Sidney Lumet like uh, crooked cop thing. Which is why I kind of thought about this because they're both like crooked cop movies. 
And I think it's funny that his first ever cinema cinematographer job was that. And now he's like directing like basically a shittier version of that. Interestingly enough, this opening set piece was taken from a rejected lethal weapon script. Huh. Which yeah, is why that it's sense. not referenced ever again in the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. It's weird how it's almost like the title and that scene, they're like, that's how they got the movie funded. Yeah. And then they're just like, let's forget about this whole bullet related thing. Because like, there's nothing about exit wounds. There's nothing about guns. There's the opening speech. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. like that was the only <laughs> thing. And that's it, yeah. you know? I'll also give this, uh, I wanted to give some more cinematography credits because it's literally the most insane list of credits. So he's done uh, The Verdict, Terms of Endearment, <laughs> Fritzy's Honor, uh, Twins, Falling <laughs> um. <laughs> Down, ah. Speed, Species, Dante's Peak, The oh. Devil's Advocate, A Couple Lethal Weapons, and then we get into this era of his career. Mm. You mean the crowning achievement era of his career? Yeah. Yes. Except not really, because, I mean, there is some wire work in this, which is yeah. pulled mm-hmm. off, mm, not super subtly, but also enhances the mythos of Steven Seagal. And I guess, like, like uh, on the subject of, like, this era of his work, we should probably talk about the other films that he did after this one, right? Uh, Romeo Must Die and Cradle to Grave came after this, right? Uh, I believe so. He did. No, Romeo Must Die was first oh, because okay. uh, that was a big uh, Aaliyah vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Which everyone kind of forgets that yeah. she was literally going to be that big at some point, which I mean, isn't huge, but still. And, then, and uh, then Cradle to the Grave was right after yeah. when he, in which he he successfully repaired himself with DMX. Yes. <laughs> I actually, when I was looking through the credits of uh, Cradle to Grave, I noticed that uh, Mark Dacascos is in it, who <laughs> went on to be the host of Iron Chef America. Ah. Oh, I mm. always wondered why that guy was so fit and able yeah. to do like flips in the opening yeah. credits. And he also killed it on Dancing with the Stars. Mm. What a guy. Yeah. The second Seagal like, is introduced, immediately he's the cool cop. Driving through the police barricade, uh, don't worry about it. Driving yeah. in El Camino, like immediately, it's <laughs> just like, you know, Into I'm it. the rebel cop. Yeah. So that was definitely classic Seagal. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And he's yeah, come yeah. late, like yeah, the bad yeah, boy yeah, that he yeah, is, yeah, yeah. to oh, the yeah. vice president giving a speech in Detroit yeah. about uh, gun How safety. guns are bad. Gun safety and specifically like kids getting shot. Yeah. Like you know, kindergarten deaths related to like handguns in the home, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I thought it was funny that they kind of, he hung his hat in this whole movie on the fact that he saved the vice president's life. And he really seemed to have no respect or regard for him at all. Like he clearly didn't care that this was the vice president and treated him like a piece of meat. Oh, and also on top of that showed up uh, late. Yeah. Well, a vice president talking so much about gun control, obviously a Democrat. Steven Seagal's not. No, (laughs) no, But as he gets up and leaves without clapping or like applauding for the vice president, what does he see but two very disorganized white terrorists who forgot to exchange proximity mines before starting off this little venture yeah, that they were doing? A, yeah, it was a very sloppy. Yeah. And especially since the proximity mines, I don't think they really paid off. I felt like it was a lot of gun. I didn't remember mm-hmm. like them actually 
doing well something. they they exploded all the vans behind the vice president's yeah. one. Yeah. oh yeah another yeah, thing i can't start- believe i'm talking about this no ponytail no ponytail. This was his big comeback with a fresh head of hair. Yeah. I look good in this. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, like, he's getting a little paunchy, but sure. he's still, I mean, he's, he's like a bear. He's big and intimidating yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 He looks, he has that sort of elder statesman action star thing yeah. going on yeah. here, which, uh, I mean. Which is weird to think when this was 25, no, 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and especially since he had yet to devolve into a certain degree of self-parody in uh, Contract to Kill. Mm. Well, I mean, he didn't know he was doing self-parody in that. <laughs> you just keep telling yourself that, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's this big sort of uh, gunplay scene yes. on this bridge. Well, uh, Seagal knows something's up. Yeah, Seagal does know something's exchanging up. Yeah, that lines. helps, that yeah. helps. Yeah, so I guess these guys, these white terrorists, mix in with uh, the cops yeah. on the force, and they get uh, sort of entrenched in this barricade, and then they have a big gunfight on a bridge. The proximity mines blow up a bunch of cars, and Steven Seagal is uh, basically setting himself up as the bad boy cop because this whole time the cops are being told to stay off the bridge, yeah. don't violate protocol, the, the Secret Service is supposed to handle this, we can't be doing this, and Steven Seagal is just, fuck that. And... Uh, he basically goes in and sort of with a certain degree of actual exciting technical competency with a gun. Mm. <laughs> uh, he does shoot does down do a helicopter. Scene. Yeah, that was incredible. Okay, I want to clear this up because I was confused about the whole movie with you, yeah, Michael. Sure. Uh, what exactly, what kind of gun was he using? Because it seemed to be like a tiny handgun that also was like a submachine gun. I'm glad you mentioned yes, this, actually. Okay. So basically the, the problem is that the sound design is an automatic weapon for his handgun. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So like it wasn't it was like some crazy gun I hadn't heard of. It no, was no, just straight no. up a dumb oh, yeah. sound yeah. design yeah. mistake. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Because like, yeah, he would shoot at this helicopter and it sounded like he was shooting like yeah, like a uh, yeah, like it's a, a big it's an like, automatic around, weapon, but it was sound. like a handgun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the idea that he shot the whole that explodes in flames. This helicopter, uh, like the idea that he'd shoot that tight of a grouping. First of all, with a handgun <laughs> is preposterous. But yeah, no, like I'm, I'm actually glad you picked up on that. That's good. Well, I mean, it was pretty obvious. It's the sound of I like so. sixteen bullets versus yeah. the sound of one. Yeah. You got a gun. Like I just, that's why I felt like that's an idiot almost for asking. Yeah. Apparently, that's this director's thing, like errors like that. Really? Apparently, that's really common with him. Like like it's an aesthetic thing? <laughs> uh, or maybe it's just like a fuck-up thing. Okay, so it's just... But like, yeah, apparently, there's so a lot of firearm boo-boos in his films. There's a lot of... Yeah. The jury's out on whether or not this is a choice or a literal... Yeah, because like on like the... There's that website where it's like the Internet Firearms Database, and it has like all the firearms and all the films, and that's one thing they mention about this guy. Huh. Yeah. Really? One thing that's interesting about this opening scene, what makes it sort of like a telltale sign of it being made, like it was released March 1st, 2001, so just before 9-11, is there is, in this scene and at the very end, there are a lot of shots of men in uniform having the shit blown out of them, like being shot to death, Mm. which you do not see after 2001 because they're all heroes. This is the literal setting sun of like, or very close to it before it became a novelty that it is now of the hard R action film. Yeah. This is like the very last sort of legitimate generation of the hard R action thing. Which this movie makes full use of by having a theme song that drops the N-word a lot. 
that and like there's like nudity in this movie which i think is shocking by just sort of action movie standards what? Now. there's nudity yeah when when there well we're gonna jump ahead if we get into that but he uh, basically there's a scene in which oh, anthony anderson's character's in a strip mm. club uh, and he gets yeah, to yeah, put yeah, like yeah. painted tits on the glass yeah. there's this whole thing okay, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. about that uh, in the Aren't shootout, you excited for that? Tease? In the shootout bridge scene, one of my favorite parts was when the El Camino gets blown up, and they cut to Seagal with this pained look on his face, like "Oh, my baby!" Like it's so good, which is kind of setting the scene for the other uh, Seagal as uh, like uh, the jokes are at his expense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks so, really dopey in some of these yeah, sequences yeah, yeah. too, which is great. The only thing I want to point out uh, about this uh, this opening scene on the bridge where he's saving the vice president and throws him over the bridge yeah, yeah. to make sure he's rescued is that the headline in the paper the next day is not, holy shit, we have domestic terrorists who are almost captured the vice president. It's Vice President Murray all washed up as he's being dragged to safety on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, very New York Post kind of headline. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that is what lands him in the hot water as he made the vice president look bad by saving his life. Yeah. Also, like, a very dangerous thing to do is to throw mm-hmm. someone yeah. off a bridge oh, totally. who can swim. Oh, yeah. and Which we're only informed of in some more pretty bad ADR. Yeah. yeah. As it, the vice president. Uh, that was a high fucking bridge. I thought we got away with it with the Glimmer Man. It seemed to be getting a little bit, a little bit better. Uh, yeah, no. I thought it might have gone away, but no. And then on top of that, uh, he didn't actually save him because he threw him off the bridge and gone away from the gunfire, but he didn't actually pull him out of the lake. Like, rescue guys came and did that. So technically, if he had just done what he did, president would be, like, or vice president would be drowned. (laughs) It's almost like he was getting the vice president, like, out of the ring so he could, like, uh, you know, keep on being a badass. He's like, dude, you're you're, you're stepping uh, on my shit. Which is funny because he throws the vice president over the side, and then that is the end of sort of the action in the scene. There, he doesn't fire. Like, there's no one else left alive for him to try and defend the vice president from. He just threw him overboard. Also, if any of this movie trope stuff really holds true, which it doesn't, most of this movie, uh, it seems like the. It would be a fantastic payoff to just have him go save the president, like literally in the water. Like, wouldn't that be a crazy set piece to have? Like, to have him dive in and heroically save the vice president? It's, it's, yeah, the, the opening scene is like the finale of like an actually well Yeah, and it wouldn't have been absurd to do, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, it was the finale of a lethal weapon script that yeah, was rejected, yeah. Yeah. which makes sense. And then it also makes, uh, for me at least, I anticipated a lot more. From the finale of this film, which turned out to be a very low-key affair for the beginning of it saving the vice president of the United States. The rest of it doesn't really live up to... Yeah, there's a really good uh, third act fight sequence, oh, which has a lot of uh, driving so and shooting. Oh, uh, but that's so not the, the end of the movie, and I know what you mean. It, the end of the movie specifically felt like a letdown, mm. which I will say... For this movie was an improvement from others in which I felt like the first action scene period in all the others was like the peak. Mm, mm. And then everything else was just mush after. Good point. Yeah. So at least, you know, there's like several. I guess what I'm saying sequences. is for a movie that opens up with saving the vice president, this turned out to be a very personal affair. Like just sort of four or five. Though it is worth 
noting for the record, he I don't believe he was undercover FBI or CIA in, in this one. <laughs> yeah. Which was which is weirdly very, refreshing. Very unsigal. Yeah. But he's, he's just a police officer. Yeah. I mean, after the debacle with the vice president, his uh, police captain or his precinct captain says, uh, we can't deal with this over yeah. here. We're sending you someplace where they can deal with you, which is the inner city, uh, which is just sort of. Uh, we can't have you handling white people like this. Why don't you go do your brutal police tactics? His, yeah, his scenes of the inner city are like if someone was parodying "Do the Right Thing." Like <laughs> it's crazy. Like oh. how you're just like Jesus Christ. Like that's so inappropriate. Yeah, <laughs> based on just the concept alone, which is like basically crooked cops belong in the ghetto, which is essentially yeah. the whole conversation about. Which interestingly enough, though, sets up the finale of this movie which almost seems to have some subtext which seems oh, weird to totally. say in yeah. this Seagull universe we're now in yeah I, I, um, I think you're honestly I totally agree yeah universe yeah it's catchy that's what I like about it uh no I think that in uh in his own way he was the perfect poster boy for sort of the uh overly aggressive cop in the urban neighborhood in that I think he is just a bear. <laughs> he is a bear. And I think that he does come off as a little bit uh, of a anti-hero in beating up a lot of inner city types, especially once the plot twist is revealed. One of the odd things that lends a lot more credibility to his roles looking back on it is there is now sort of emerging reports, almost like the Catholic Church in moving around pedophilic priests they move around uh cops from violent place to place. cops yeah. yes oh totally. city uh, to city yeah and like in uh what was not above the law what was the other one we watched glimmer man yeah in glimmer man they say you know he came from he came from new york without anybody else like he's playing the same sort of cop here he's probably playing the same character 007 style this is what i'm saying guys. i love it i love it <laughs> levels upon levels of the he's been universe playing the same character for years only this time He's up against a software programmer. Yeah. <laughs> what a guy. So he uh, gets moved to a new precinct and uh, he meets with the new commander who's a woman. Yeah, but he doesn't know that. He's already crossed Jordan before he knows that the commander is crossing Jordan. Oh, he crossed Jordan. <laughs> but like, like, I would say this is the first film where like he's actually kind of suave at times. Where the commander's like, I was gonna put you behind a desk, and he's like, "That's like that's like some Humphrey Bogart shit," you know? He's so suave because it's so like just great action movie script. Like again, I feel like they kept him away from polishing this one, quote unquote. Mm, yeah. It feels like it was like a lot of this movie has a lot of just C plus like writing stuff. Mm. Which was to me the interesting, uh, oh God, I hate dichotomy, but like, uh, <laughs> like the idea that the actual narrative story going on is kind of weirdly ahead of its time and kind of like radical and interesting, but the delivery system is in the actual dialogue words are like D minus. <laughs> Like there's direct ripoffs of like lines from like uh, the usual suspects in it and like uh, several other 80s action movies. Like they kept saying the greatest trick was that the devil convinced you he was dead (laughs) like three times in the movie, which is like not only a usual suspects line, but like one of the top two. Like and there's another part at the end where. 
they're going to inject him with something and he's like is this to make me talk because in uh, above the law there's a truth serum that they're going to inject Seagal with yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes no <laughs> this is going to make you die and then his face changes he's like 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 if it was just sodium pentothal or whatever, he'd be like, that's cool. I can handle it. But he's like, no, we're going to kill you. He's like, mm. <laughs> It's like hilarious. But uh, so is it at this point that he goes to anger management? Yes. Yes. Rageaholics. Yes. <laughs> Which is amazing. It's amazing because uh, they have cast all like everybody else in the scene, except for Steven Seagal and spoiler alert, Tom Arnold. They've casted for the most impotent looking men. Yeah. yeah. It, it's like the least rage worthy people ever. Like, it, like if, if I was going to leave someone alone in my apartment to freak out, I'd pick one of those guys. But it's, it's like, like it, it, the only people who would ever go to this sort of class would be the most impotent men in the world who would be forced there because they can't, they, they can't say no, you know? It's a good point. Especially in contrast to the police station, which is filled with, the most god awful roid raging hulks like that you can oh imagine. Oh my god, it's amazing! Yeah. And, and, yeah, that's the first time we've seen that in a Seagal film, right? Like yeah. a bunch of like jacked dudes they, who, yeah, like proto kind of put him to shame, like Brock Dave Batista types, like just yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking yeah. piles of muscle. Uh, what's his name? Michael Jai White. Michael yes. Jai White. Yeah. yeah, he looks terrifying. He looks oh my god, like, yeah, he looks. He doesn't like, even look real. He looks like he's a muscular guy. Who then like was made of wax and got melted in the sun like twenty percent and got kind of just moved around a bit. He played Jax in Mortal Kombat, right? Maybe I don't know. We'll look that up. Yeah, but speaking of Adonis's, uh, Tom Arnold. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Probably our first introduction to someone who is playing blue or like punching below Steven Seagal in terms of acting ability. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't get him. I don't get him at all. I really don't. I have nothing to give you about Tom Arnold. I thought he was kind of funny. Like a, I don't know. I, oh, he was so bad in this. He, he was, was so bad. He was very bad except for the very end where... Oh, the the riffing scene? Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. Okay, yeah. I, I was, was going to say, up. I would sooner have watched that movie, whatever that was, than the movie <laughs> that I just watched. And it was kind of a weird letdown. <laughs> so in, in the Rageaholics thing, him getting stuck in a desk, amazing. So let's set that up a little bit. In the Rageaholics... Tom Arnold is there because he's a TV host who's yeah. been sent to Rageaholics. Yeah. Like a local access TV host, yeah. like pre like the idea of being like InfoWars on YouTube. And he's of one of these guys that has to keep playing to whatever audience he has, kind of like Conan O'Brien. Just he feeds off of whatever energy is given to him. But this lady's given him none of it. And then Steven Seagal is his first time there. You got to say something if it's your first time there. So Steven Seagal tries to stand up. He can't stand up in these little school children chairs that they've got him in, which has like the desk attached. So he ends up tearing it off. Oh, it's incredible. A joke? And is it supposed to be a joke on his physical appearance? I think I think it's kind of twofold. I think it's like both like to show that he's such a massive ass dude, but also like uh to show that like he's an angry motherfucker. It's also a blatant cribbing of a Simpsons joke too though <laughs> Homer gets stuck in a desk like that in an exact same way in an uh, and I don't know that kind of just seems like a kind of funny observation that could be made multiple times one of those pre 9-11 jokes we yeah. all laugh yeah exactly in the Rageaholics thing Seagal does drop another hilarious line when she's uh, talking about uh, he's like oh you know you should speak to the group blah 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 and then he's just like 
I don't have any rage. I'm a happy guy. You see this face? This is a happy face. Uh, you'll be as lucky to be as happy as I am. <laughs> like so funny. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's funny because it's not a one-liner. It's just a weird non sequitur thing lines. to say. And it's also one of the things that I noticed about this film, just from a uh, an audio editing perspective, is that there was no effort made to balance levels between his lines and other people. Everybody else speaks at like a very regular volume. And this is one of the things I'm starting to hate about watching all these Steven Seagal films. There are many things to hate about these films. Uh, there are many things to love as well. And obviously, love always wins out over hate. But this part is just, he always talks like this. And everyone else in this film was talking like a normal human being. And so the dynamic range of these conversations is like, first of all, you have to turn it up just to hear other people. And then you have to turn it up even more to hear Steven Seagal. And then after he talks, often there's like somebody's head being crushed. And so your speakers are just blown out. Yeah. Where do we go from uh, after this Rageaholics meeting? Car stealing scene. Oh, Car stealing boy. scene. Steven Seagal leaves this meeting after tearing off the top of a desk and then kicking it kind of ineffectually. He's done with it. He leaves and he sees some local Asian a gang crew members. of no good nicks. Yeah. A crew of ruffians. And out comes yeah. the, the uh, arbitrary broken Japanese. Yes. <laughs> Wait, did he speak broken Japanese mm-hmm. in this one? What? Uh, really? Yeah, he gave him a couple lines when he first introduced really? himself, didn't he? Does he? Oh, I don't remember that. Well, maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe it just felt so natural that <laughs> I imagined it. Yeah, so he runs into these guys. Yeah. Um, and he tells them, yo, I know how to get in this into this sort of truck in a second. Which was, it's kind of a funny opening line. I mean, if you imagine sort of Bruce Willis delivering this line, yeah. that's exactly what it's written. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly, yeah. And he kind of sells it. Oh, yeah. Nah. Yeah. I, I thought it was good. I, I still stand by the idea that he probably is just, was just left away from writing in this one. And he didn't get to kind of let his really poor tendencies mm. run amok. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Or maybe this is one of the few times that I realized, like, this could bring you back. Like, this was, this is your chance. Just follow directions. I don't know. I didn't look into how much money this made. I it actually, imagine. I think it made 90 or okay. it, it at least made back double what its production cost was, but it was so pan that it didn't like, there's no real follow up to it. Mm. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's the thing about this movie. It's, it's admittedly forgettable. Like I felt in no real reason a needing desire for a sequel or anything. Exeter wounds. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it just in terms of the fact that Seagal is like the fact that we're talking about praising his acting performance, I think is less about him. And more just about how bad, like literally everyone else is <laughs> and like bad performances by like, okay, to like not bad, you know, actors, mm. with the exception of Tom Arnold um, <laughs> and maybe DMX, depending on who you ask. But uh, yeah, like it's just everyone is phoning it in and giving it their worst on the acting. And I got to say, so Seagal gets into a fight with these uh, with these gang members and we get our first little bit of uh, wire stack. Yeah. And it's kind of funny he does a very impossible like he goes it almost looks like he's breakdancing for a second to kick a man he goes down on one of his forearms to kick a man in the face to get a better angle on it and it's just from watching you know these other Seagal films one it's great to see him move two totally wasn't expecting that at all uh it, sort of like more Sorry, supernatural movement or whatever, which it is like a 
that's almost a test from that much just like the matrix was a crater on all movies in which even steven seagal could <laughs> go into the t- the bullet time <laughs> wait did the matrix come out before this yeah 99 oh this came out in 2000 2001 yeah 2001 okay jeepers yeah i know How's that for making you feel like oh an oldie? Oh my god! Because the Matrix is so post nine eleven. Yeah, oh. yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But enough about good movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another funny point about the carjacking scene is that he has an audience for it, and that the Rage of Hollis group has filtered out to watch this, and now he's like the class favorite, including the teacher who clearly does like that. Like I didn't like you, but now I have this like yeah. baby look <laughs> yeah. in my eyes. Yeah. Which is, I mean, uh, such par for the course in this movie. Yeah. And it is paid off in no way whatsoever. No, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's a pretty unnecessary, albeit pleasant enough, callback to the Rageaholics class. Yeah, but the arousal she feels at seeing Steven Seagal moonwalk over a man's face. Yeah. No, that didn't last. Yeah. And then so next we go into the car purchase scene, right? Our introduction to, uh, as credited, just DMX. He didn't yeah. go for his name. Um, whose music is played multiple times even when he's uh, on screen yeah yeah uh even isn't there at least once where it's played is it in the car is any of dmx's music played is it like diegetically yeah Yeah. um i think so i think so because that opens up a whole new can of worms that i love to dive into but no one else finds as interesting as me steve Earl on the wire has a steve Earl tattoo what he must at some point realize that he he looks exactly like Steve Earl and yeah. Mm. Anyways, um, <laughs> God bless you, Copperhead Road. Yeah, that uh, scene introduces us to DMX and Anthony Anderson, uh, who you know I like Anthony Anderson, not so much here. Uh, <laughs> it was really just an obnoxious sidekick character written far too much. Like just they just talked way too much. Like mm. for one of those characters. And it was just really like just childish and dumb, and it sounded like a thirteen-year-old talking. Fair point. It seemed like after every take, because somebody behind the camera was like, "Oh, DMX isn't really popping. Maybe we can just up Anthony Anderson a little bit." Yeah, Let's I just felt keep like him just like getting riff. Come can on, you, can, yeah, Adler. can you riff yeah. on something mm. for a little bit? Yeah, because uh, that whole the whole uh, DMX buying the two of them going into a luxury sports. Yeah, dealership. Dealership. Yeah. Uh, it's very much an Anthony Anderson scene and not a DMX. Yes. And I guess now we might as well just start getting into the acting performance that is DMX, which I guess I could most closely describe as like uh like a lizard sitting in the sun. <laughs> like he seems to like <laughs> love, like quietly observe his surroundings, gauge the room, and then deliver like m- at the most like six or seven words. Mm. Which is great because when he does deliver those words, it kind of always falls flat. Yeah. Especially for the character that DMX is revealed later be playing yeah. uh, with such nuances as a lizard. is uh, He's a software developer who made it rich on the dot-com bubble and is just pretending to sell heroin. You know, the one thing that was interesting about the uh, car scene was that even though Seagal wasn't in it at all, like it seemed like it fit into Seagal's whole thing about demystifying so, yeah. like the coolness associated with race let's, because oh sorry let's break down this car scene sure like the, my <laughs> first thought was like this is some it needs like, to be dissected simplistic Uncle Tom stuff yes this you know? is unbelievable yeah so 
uh, they go to this. Well, they're just in this dealership and they're just sitting around in cars and they're being helped by this uh, uh, car salesman. Stick up his ass black door. Yeah, exactly. That kind of car salesman. And he's yeah. clearly doing like a white guy accent. Yeah. And oh, sir, I can definitely help you. Or was it British? Uh, so you hear this guy uh, sort of doing his whole pitch. Meanwhile, DMX and Anthony Anderson are kind of having this totally like incomprehensible and totally unrelated conversation about just how dope it is to be able to buy cars, basically, which is a weird setup for this character who's revealed to have like a somewhat noble purpose at the end mm. as just like this like money spoiled. I'm buying the Lambo type guy. They sit in all the cars. They fuck with this um, stick up his ass black guy. They finally get to this absurd car to just be sitting in a showroom like Lamborghini, like clearly special order like Lamborghini that I only seven came to the US. Exactly. And I almost feel like DMX like maybe insisted like that nice a car or something for this (laughs) scene. And he gets in this car and he asks to test drive it. The black stick of his ass says no. This weird white guy with like a sort of hippie vibe and like, was he wearing sunglasses on his forehead or something? Wasn't wearing sunglasses. No, it felt like he was perpetually wearing sunglasses, astro projecting over himself. Now, here, here's the thing. Am I crazy or did he almost look like a younger cigar? Kind of. Yeah. And so this guy somehow just produces the keys happens that the keys car. in the exact yeah, car is sitting. And yeah, he exactly. starts Doesn't the car. Doesn't ever say a word in this yeah. scene. Yeah. Yeah. He starts the car. This black guy's other black guy, he's not DMX, uh, protests just over like, you can't start the car in here. Yeah. Burr, burr. And then he says, I'll buy it and make sure he gets the commission pointing at the other guy, yeah. the non-black guy stick up his ass car salesman and throws them a briefcase of money yeah. and drives the car out <laughs> of the, the dealership. <laughs> Like, I mean, like, what the, kind of absurd business is that? The whole point of that scene is that, hey, white people can be cool. That was that's all I got out of it. Like, that was the only reason that scene was in the. It film. was weird, or was it not all black people are cool? That, I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, it was also just like setting up DMX as a certain image mm. in this movie, and his sidekick Anthony Anderson a certain image in this movie that. They totally absurdly twist on later, and it totally is in deference to what the twist is later. Just from an audio producer's point of view, if you were actually to rev like a Lamborghini in oh, you'd like blow the windows out of like well, they'd all be deaf. Yeah, they it yeah, it would just keep reflecting. There's another scene where I was thinking where he got a gun fired really close to his head in one scene in this movie. Does anyone remember when that is? And I thought like that like he. He would have literally blown out his eardrum if that had Oh, <laughs> unquestionably. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, this is one of those films, which I think is almost everything in the Steven Seagal canon, where uh, all handguns have just about infinite uh, bullets. Yes. Like the clip sizes are like And apparently bullets. submachine gun capabilities in this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a lot of pump, uh, pump action shotguns, although yeah. I'm not sure, like DMX at the end with the belt. And uh, we'll get to that. As a, um, as yeah. a good scene. Oh, boy. Uh, where do we go? The D de- the drug deal with the crooked cop. Yeah, I think we're about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah we can yeah, jump. Yeah. Let's jump. Yeah. So Seagal comes down a street in his Camionero. Camionero. Yeah. That was a weird uh to go from an El Camino to a brand new pickup truck. That was a little odd. It was kind of basic. 
And the mm. pickup truck really didn't look that cool yeah. in this whole movie. It was a weird it looked choice. stupid compared to DMX's car. Yeah. And as much as that absurd yellow Hummer like pissed me off just in terms of like <laughs> you're trying to trail this guy yeah. driving around in the most even for 2001 like absurd vehicle to be yeah. in. And the idea that like this guy who's doing all these crazy like underworld dealings or like co-op dealings is driving around in that like is well, so was, ridiculous. I thought that was Anthony Anderson's car. It is, but yeah, like they're in on the the whole thing, right? But so, he like, he's you know a ne'er do well playboy. I see, I see. He gets them to put it on the glass, so mm-hmm. that's the big Hummer. <laughs> I forgot back then Hummers had like just straight up. Sort oh, of Hummers military. used to be big as shit. Yeah, yeah, and they also just used to be like societally acceptable. Like yeah, it felt like they weren't trying to make the Hummers. It felt like a, just like an SUV mm-hmm. vehicle. He had. Anyways, Seagal is driving home from a long day of policing and sees something he doesn't like. Yeah, was it Anthony Anderson in the bushes? First, he sees this guy flick a cigarette out his window. Whoa, that's Ben. Oh, yeah, and there's there's 67 cigarettes. Oh, my God, yeah. Ground. This guy has like, been waiting there that's for... In, that's like four packs of cigarettes. Dude, <laughs> come on. Like, Give me a fucking break. This is the longest drug deal in history. They're trying to... Yeah, they, they needed some sort of shorthand signifier that... This guy had been waiting there for a while, and so he had he had smoked at least two dozen cigarettes. If they flew on the ground. to Afghanistan to the poppy fields, got the poppies, flew back, processed it, made the heroin, he'd smoke less cigarettes. It's an insane amount of cigarettes. Well, how do we not know it's just a popular waiting for drug deals to be finished spot? Like maybe he's just building on the. <laughs> oh, pile. it was someone else's cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah, a yeah, constantly growing yeah. pile. There's like sure. a disability spot, a waiting for drug deals to be spot. Yeah, yeah, they don't have any more of those in Detroit. Fucking new government. So yeah, the, the pile of cigarettes tips uh, Seagal off that something bad is going on. He sees uh, Anthony Anderson crouched in the bushes with binoculars. Pulling a spicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. And with some binoculars that don't look very high tech when yeah. you just look at Anthony looking through them. But when us as the audience get to look through them, they have night vision capabilities and a very high-powered microphone. And, and wasn't there like a zooming sound? Like, yeah. like, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> it's funny to think about how many just stupid technical errors in sound design there are in this movie. Yeah. When the guy is a cinematographer, it's really kind of perfect. Yeah. Uh, I only know images. Another hilarious detail <laughs> is uh, when DMX is making his heroin purchase, there is a macro shot of him with a little bag that says heroin test kit. I should get those at Walmart and be like, oh, let me check. The the heroin test. Let's check this one out. <laughs> they, go, they ran out. That's why yeah. they went out of business. So, so yeah, he. I got this on a blue light special. <laughs> so he catches Anthony Anderson, uh, handcuffs him to the grill of his truck. Yes. Yep. And then charges in. But yes. before that, he sees, uh, what's her face? Eva. Oh, Eva Mendez. Uh, recently Eva divorced Mendes. from Ryan Gosling. Yes. Are they divorced now? Unfortunately. For Ryan. Yeah. Oh. And she's the only person in this movie that really tips the hat to the plot twist at all in that she sort of delivers this weirdly sort of non sequitur line about how like how he's a cop and he's like she has a very like down to earth like realistic approach which is like you're handcuffing this guy to a car without like doing any of your due process like this is so corrupt like something along those lines but yeah. not as ah, you I know pick up on that. articulately worded and really that's the only 
tip of the hat to this crazy plot twist later in this movie, which I guess I will save for later, but I will say it felt like kind of radical by accident, that whole arc of thinking where like now it like seems very silly. For yeah. Sure. But it also is like kind of weirdly prescient now where it's like sure. over policing is a serious problem. And it's like one of the bigger issues that, you know, kind of comes up in the modern lexicon of political problems yep. in America. And they kind of feel like they jumped the gun on that. Yeah. So anyway, Seagal deals with Chekhov's Latina and rushes in to finish up this drug deal. The only way he knows how, which is going and spoiling it. (laughs) And really making no effort to be silent or sneaky. Oh, yeah, I know. He is a bear. He is a bear. And then DMX gets away, but he grabs the little Italian dude who turns out to be a cop. Ooh. Yeah. So at that point, uh, he kind of comes out and he discovers also Anthony Anderson has ripped the grill off his truck. <laughs> Which also then is put back on the very next day. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't Anthony Anderson say, I'm going to rip this off when he like, yeah. he's like, I'm going to fuck this shit up, motherfucker. Or yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And it becomes a weird like callback thing where then he sees Anthony Anderson again. And it's like oh, every time he's, hilarious. Like, like, <laughs> he's got his grill or something. I laughed. Yeah. But uh, Anthony Anderson, uh, did we now go to him, the trail of Anthony Anderson, and realizing that he's a big Playboy nightclubber? Or is it the scene in the police? We do have room? to go to the police station. Well, so yeah. we go to him finding out that the Italian guy is a cop. Yes. And then he goes, oh, you fucked up, man. Think of the promotion you're going to get. Hard cut to Seagal yeah. directing oh, yeah. traffic yeah. with <laughs> feel good. Yeah. Yeah. That was just a wonderful piece of just of absolutely absurd cigar. It was beautiful. Stuff. I've it's never the white seen, gloves. I've, he was so bad at policing traffic. It was like he. It was worse than like as if anyone who walked in off the street went and did it. Yeah. The the one where the woman so disobeys his uh, traffic direction. He's reaching for his gun. <laughs> yeah. It's like. Yeah. You're breaking the fucking traffic. I'm going to fucking shoot you in the face, motherfucker. Yeah. He like, directs traffic so uh, wrong that men have to crawl out of their car windows without opening the doors to fight each other yeah. over his misdirected and signals. Some, some car gets like T-boned like really bad. Yeah. And in then the he, scene. he calls it quits after that, right? Yeah. He's just like, fuck this. I'm done. Yeah. Like he could do that. Like he just be like, oh, this intersection is too hard to yeah. police. I'm just ditching. Like, which, which, which fits perfectly into Seagal's whole thing. Oh, Which yeah, is like he can't be bothered with this low level shit. He's a he's a high concept here. Yeah, unless it's heroics yeah, on a yeah, capital yeah. H scale. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. second great hat wearing of this film by Seagal, though. Yeah. The second mm-hmm. of two, I think. Yeah. And next I think is the taser scene. Yes. So that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. So first of all, this is our big intersect or intersection. Uh introduction to uh the uh whole sort of Crew of uh, police police officers. Yeah, how half the office are bodybuilders. Yes, yeah. I can't get over how fucked up and uh, and obvious this first scene makes that they're just like meathead, overroided freaks. Yeah, it's insane. Like the idea that your introduction to the cops would be this sick endurance fest yeah. with tasers. Yeah, that's so in a post nine eleven world, so fucking disturbing in a weird way. And also, like, the police would never, ever in a billion years ever allow that movie to come out. That's so bad. It looked, makes them look yeah. awful. The, so this whole taser scene, this is like some classic 
someone didn't take five minutes to Google anything. It's the most yes. unrealistic. So first of all, uh, that model of taser, you can't select the voltage. By default, it is at 50,000. So the max like is the the one that it's set at. Another thing is those tasers, uh, like every single time you like dry stun someone or every single time you actually like fire the hooks, it keeps a record of every single one of those. So they couldn't get away with this. Yeah. Well, unless he bought it himself. Yeah. I'm interested to know, like, how new were tasers at this point? I don't know. Because I'm not sure how it tasers almost had have this feeling. For. Remember how we were talking about the drone scene? And how, like, it's hot new tech? Yeah. It felt kind of like that, where it's just like, and oh. And above like, the law, when uh, Pam Greer is saved by, uh, like, the big twist is she's saved by the vest she was wearing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it felt kind of akin to that, where, like, it was like they kind of wanted to show off, like, what tasers capacities are now these police officers are able to go over that i'll look that but but can't someone michael who's not on like pcp or meth sure sustain a prolonged tasering like seagal does in this one or well here's another thing that like like it doesn't go on forever it's like a fixed length you know so you can't just be like until you die you know what i mean and so like someone could like withstand that for sure Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh huh. yeah. I think tasers are—they're extremely painful and they're an extremely awful thing to do to yourself. But they don't strike me as like the most lethal thing. Well, I mean, like, like scientifically speaking, it's impossible for one to stop your heart. Okay. Like it actually, the shock that you get is less than a static shock from a doorknob. Really? Yeah. Because okay. it's it's like a like a voltage versus what's the other one? Voltage versus wattage amperage. Yeah. And okay. basically that like even if you have a pacemaker it literally can't kill you because it's meant to subdue so yeah, it's like, like it's almost like it's a programming thing where like yeah you, you can't kill someone yeah like the only reason someone dies from being tasered is because they have like an anxiety attack yeah okay. but like if you're just chill the voltage itself <laughs> won't fry your heart well steven anything. seagal was certainly chill in that scene <laughs> yeah arguably the most chill i've ever seen anyone get tasered yeah. even when it's like youtube videos of people getting tasered he literally just walks up and is just like yeah go ahead like he just well, one of the things I no like one about would this react scene, like that no. for sure yeah yeah one of the things i like about this scene is steven seagal it's it's the first time i think we've seen in any of his films where he looks emasculated because he comes in as this sort of dumpy kind of white guy he's very casually dressed in this film there's yeah. kind of like he's wearing a lot of zip up like fleece and he, stuff. he walks in upon greek gods yeah sort of going at it with each other in this yeah. thing uh and, and he has his shirt on when he gets yeah 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 uh, he never takes his shirt off, whereas everybody else who gets tased is like just so ripped. And there's a huge betting ring that's associated uh, with this, which maybe that's how if the taser is marking it down, other people are just able to sweep it under the rug. There's something fascinating about this, though, that like how like Seagal's thing, like in terms of physicality, in terms of being like an alpha dude, it's never been about him being shredded. Yeah. And it's almost like he's like a throwback to like like Rock Hudson. Cary Grant, stuff like that, where it's just like, I was born an alpha and I didn't need to work out, you know? Like, I mean, he's <laughs> what, 6'5", right? Yeah. 6'4". And I mean, it's just like, like his physicality sells itself and he doesn't need to go to the gym. He's just like a big guy. Unlike Michael Jai White, who looks significantly shorter than him, yeah. but 
like is clearly significantly more muscular. His back just looks like a tangle of snakes. Oh, it's the same. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh... Anyways, uh, Steven Seagal gets into a fight with the guy who tases him, then tases him back at the same voltage, and the guy can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> Jokes on you, sir. Uh, guy comes back up to swing at Steven Seagal. Michael Jai White meets him forearm oh, for forearm. Oh, so Their good. Forearms interlink. In a <laughs> that was pretty boss. It's such an odd like maybe that is the cinematographer as director coming yeah. out like that is such an odd way to handle conflict. Yeah, is yeah, like one guy swinging for a punch. Yeah, and the other guy swings for a punch in the opposite direction, and two equal but opposing forces completely cancel each other out. Yeah, it's kind of like when someone swings a sword at someone and they catch the blade with their hands as yeah. opposed to just stepping out of the way. Which happens later. Yeah. It does. Somehow a sword scene got into this. <laughs> a great sword scene. Yeah. Michael J. Michael J. White is also uh, another example of a really, really poor actor in this oh, movie. Yeah. He is really, really uh, uh, just empty in terms of what he's giving. He feels like there's two categories of actors in here, which is people who can't act or can't act yet and people who are just phoning it in. And he honestly feels like, even though I don't know how great he was at acting, because I know he's like a martial artist first. Yes. But like, he felt like he was phoning it in. Like, he felt like, ah, oh, fuck it. Like, this movie's stupid. And I get the impression with that with like uh, a couple of the other actors in this movie, perhaps even Anthony Anderson. So I don't know. And then where do we go after that? Uh, is it to the nightclub? Yeah, I think it is. Because I seem to recall that there's just a lot of early anthony anderson in this movie yeah nightclub uh oh we meet isaiah isaiah thomas or isaiah washington isaiah washington we meet isaiah washington in the locker room isaiah thomas sorry (laughs) basketball joke pistons right yes and the celtics now Uh, there's a new i'm not youtubing that okay and this is all getting cut uh yeah does he meet isaiah washington in the locker room uh i feel like they're like in a workout space or something or no he meets him at the desk Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He meets him, like, at his desk later. Yeah. Okay. very uneventful. So why does he go to the nightclub? I forget what the motivation is. You know, I'm having trouble with that myself. Does anyone remember this? Okay, let's try and set this up in a way that we can... Is this after DMX visits the guy in prison? There is that scene. That that happens a lot earlier. Okay, and that's where we hear DMX music playing when he's on screen. Yeah. Yes. For sure. We hear it a couple times, but that's, I think, oh, yeah. the most yeah. big example. I think that's how he finds out that he needs to go to the nightclub, because he saw that the guy, because he goes down to deal with the old white dude, and he's like, can I see the logs for whatever, whatever? And he's like, oh, yeah. take a look at yourself, oh, sonny. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. After we're greeted to so many Adonises all in one room, Adonai, yes. Adonai. Yes. That's what we should call Be- it. Beautiful myth. Steven Seagal heads over to Anthony Anderson's nightclub. Yes. Which is nice in a very pre nine yeah, eleven way. Gonna, yeah. It's uh, yeah. What was it called? It had like a cool hip name. Oh man, I totally forget. Mm. And then we also learn about the dynamic between DMX and Anthony Anderson because DMX has him bring him a drink. Yeah, yeah. he's his bitch. Yeah, he is his bitch, but he's also in this movie, uh, his literal crutch. Mm. <laughs> And at this point, we think it's because DMX is sort of the brains behind the operation, yeah. the, the drug dealer. The kingpin. And Anthony Anderson is just sort of a, a patsy, yeah. which Anthony Anderson probably plays that the best. Oh, yeah. He's yeah, he is like the hammiest man 
I've ever seen in this whole movie. And I don't know. I feel like with hammy performances, sometimes people get away with it. If it's just like the commitment is just all into it. Jim Carrey gets away with that shit all the time where he's actually really unbearable, but because he's committed to it, 110% people like it. That's true. And uh, Anthony Anderson comes close here, but he does better in other places. Yeah. It's just like his work on black is good. Yeah, he is good. And it's just like he he just very is. He's very grating in this. Mm. But again, that seems like something that is being built up by retakes and retakes and retakes. So one interesting thing about the nightclub scene is it's one of the few times out of the films that we've seen where Seagal gets in a fight and there's some degree of adversity. Oh, yeah. Because the two bouncers are these massive jack dudes. It seems like he actually has to try. Mm hmm. Which is refreshing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not often that he's in trouble yeah. uh, in his films. It's and made then me, you look at it, it's 45 minutes into the film, so you know that it's not. That whole thing with Seagal has actually made me really think about like action movies in general, which is that it's really an essential thing that the good guys, quote-unquote, and the bad guys, quote-unquote, are like in an, a relatively reasonable competition with each other for like wits and strength. Because... Anytime I hated Steven Seagal's action sequences, it's because he just dominated and it yeah. was just like there was no competition, so it wasn't exciting. Whereas in this movie, he is matched with someone who can hit him back. Yeah. And it's instantly more exciting. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're not aware. And not only that, but it also exists on the mental level, which is in this movie, he kind of gets upwitted a couple of times, including or upwitted, uh, outwitted a couple of times in this movie, including the big twist, which yeah. he doesn't see coming, which mm-hmm. normally he kind of pokes through the plot hole himself you know and i feel like that has really made me think about how action movies in general are better when they break into that so one of the interesting things about almost all steven seagal films is uh they they follow the hero's journey up to the point where the hero gets what they want and then the next stage in that uh hero's journey is always supposed to be they pay a terrible price for what they want and then they repent and they come back and they come back to the original situation and change man that him paying a terrible price almost never happens no, in, in, for no, any of yeah. his characters. No, not at all. And this is the closest we ever get to that sort of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's almost a complete, like, you almost feel for Steven Seagal as a character in this one, even yeah. though in other films, like, his wife has died, who I would think is probably his wife from Above the Law, because all mm. of his kids at the funeral are blonde, just like What's-Her-Face would have been. Mm. Sharon Stone? Sharon yeah. Stone, yeah. <laughs> the, the, Good old what's-her-face. I think this, this is an interesting point in terms of like uh, what makes an action film compelling. And I mean, I think this is why Die Hard is so popular. Yeah. That it's just like this schlub who's dealing with these hoity-toity European genius mercenaries. He's bleeding. He's beat up. It seems like, like how is John Q. Lunchbox going to beat all these guys in suits? Yeah. And that makes it so much more appealing as opposed to Seagal, where it's just like, we'd be lucky to see him uh, even bruised. Yeah. You know? And it's oftentimes romanticized ah, yeah, to a yeah. degree after these movies comes out. Like Die Hard, I think people misremember the the uh, sort of matchup that you talk about when they talk about in retrospect and they see John McClane as like, you know, the Adonis that a Seagal envisions himself in his head. Hmm. But that's an inaccurate remembering. And yeah, a lot of the... Uh, entertaining elements of these movies is the idea that we even question if the good guy wins. Mm-hmm. Another funny thing in the nightclub is, I think you might have mentioned this before, uh, it uh, continues the gag of Anthony Anderson being scared of Seagal. Where he sees him, he's like, oh yeah. shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
And it also has... I like the, how you lowered your voice to do an impression of Anthony Anderson. Yeah. Probably you should increase Oh, oh shit. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. That was good. So it, at the end of the nightclub scene, there was one part that I found kind of confusing, and I'm interested to see uh, what you guys made of it. Is it when Anthony Anderson has to go in between two uh, garbage trucks? That scene was hilarious. But it's a scene when... when Isaiah, it wasn't the strippers covered in paint. It's the scene when Isaiah Washington gets DMX's ridiculous looking gun, pulls the trigger, and nothing happens. Is it that there was no bullets because DMX isn't actually a gangster? That's, or was yeah, it just that there wasn't a round chamber? It's yeah. a literal Chekhov's gun. Yeah. It's because uh, he's he's not actually going to kill anybody. See, I thought about that, and that was tough for me too, because on one hand, I could have just gone with the easy plot hole, which is I think Seagal's level of craftsmanship like I kind of default to that now but also like when I got the twist and I thought about it in retrospect I'm like maybe it actually was a setup but it's so that gray area is so see big. I think <laughs> it's it's very planted because in a scene coming up DMX confronts the cop that he's play, paid off and threatens him with the gun but we've seen in the previous scene that he doesn't keep bullets in his gun. So the cop is at no actual danger. And I thought that's what they were trying to play off. Of. Okay. All right. Well, get ready for your mind to be blown. Yeah. Later on in the film, Seagal uses that gun to shoot his handcuffs off. Mm. How did the bullets get in the gun? Is it just an error? I wonder. Cause I mean, it's a pretty ostentatious <laughs> firearm. Yeah. It has a compensator on the front. I was like, going to say the compensator ostentatious indeed yeah <laughs> i think how only one of us knows anything about guns and yet steven seagal is mostly all about guns like you're yeah. our vault of all steven seagal related <laughs> it's helpful i'm not Aikido, yeah. guns yeah so that the comms is actually interesting you don't see that very often so basically what it is it's basically a weight to stop the muzzle from coming up yeah, that is quite ostentatious. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it, like it's something that you see in like like sport shooting. And actually, yeah. that model of gun is called the sport model. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fun sidebar. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever actually seen like uh, someone say, "Put them on the glass," and actually have someone put like bare breasts on a pane of glass. <laughs> to which the responder then just goes like, "Whoa." That to me was like so. How come I don't remember any of this goofy? Yeah, I think it's way that. too seriously. You guys get a different cut because this is for sure in it, and there was something really hypnotic about the image of two weird neon painted boobs pressing up against the glass, and then a weird paint imprint of them being left on this glass, like in this place. I gotta rewatch this. I yeah, I, I like I remember the Tom Arnold boobs, but I don't remember. I can't yeah, believe yeah, you both same, missed yeah. this. <laughs> to okay, me, it was so, so weird. After the nightclub scene, uh, this is the scene where Seagal goes and visits the guy that DMX visited before. DMX's brother. Yeah, who will we find that out later. Yeah. But there's another funny Seagal line where Seagal's asking this question over and over and over. And he's like, man, what, what's wrong with you? You deaf or something? He's like, no, nah, just persistent. <laughs> yeah, he really gave that one his all, didn't he? <laughs> Zinger. So, yeah. And so I don't think at that point we've really learned too, too much aside from the association with uh, DMX and that guy. And then it's kind of it's got the wheels turning in Seagal's yeah. head. Yeah, there's a far less or um, far more amount of like character development and much less just needless plot filler in this, yeah. which was good. I thought 
But now we've hit that point, uh, which is our second act problems leading to third act problems, which mm-hmm. every Steven Seagal film has, which yes. is just sort of how the machinations in the second act yes. resolve in the third one. And do they actually? And where are we going from here? Yeah. Because Steven Seagal, then like there's an interaction that he has with Crossing Jordan, who's on a date. And that thing never really pays off. Oh, that scene was hilarious. Okay. Like, I might have I read know. too far into this. Yeah. Is All it right. just a coincidence that her date looks just like Michael Bay? I think so. It could, yeah. it, it could just be. I think yeah. the point was he was more just like, he looked like a wiener. Yeah. He looked like a <laughs> the One scene before douche. that that I loved was uh, where all those guys were talking about their sports heroes. Oh, yeah. yeah that was so weird. That was yeah. really weird. It was really interesting because, like, uh, there's that Canadian jab. Or just like, yeah. nah, nah, guys, what about I like Wayne, Wayne Gretzky? Yeah, yeah. Canadians, yeah. you and your Wayne Gretzky. And then or uh, like Michael Jai White, uh, you know, puts the button on it by suggesting that Muhammad Ali is the best. And it's kind of like, like, like in hindsight, brood sort of writing where it's kind of like you're supposed to like believe in him as a good guy. He helps the gal out in the taser scene. Now he's supporting Muhammad Ali. He must be good. Mm hmm. I do like how often everybody said in that scene how much they hated baseball because that felt realistic. Relatable. Yeah, that was that was <laughs> weird for a Hollywood film to be shitting on baseball. One guy tried to stick up for it, but they really overruled him. Yeah, also the idea that that scene was such a button on it that all these guys who are having a really heated debate about sports icons when Michael Chai comes in and just goes, it was Muhammad Ali. Everyone was just kind of like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conversation yeah, yes. over. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Why are we having this dumb conversation? As a lot of our arguments are resolved, is one person comes in after everyone has sort of established themselves, and another person comes in and says one line, and everybody silently agrees. Wait, yeah. who's that walking in right now? Yeah. <laughs> so this is kind of a like a, a silly sort of observation, but did you notice that the uh, commander, the female, who we kind of hinted at is like, uh, the, the object of desire for Seagal. Are you talking but, about Crossing Jordan? Please refer to her as such. What, is that a TV show? Mrs. Crossing, she prefers. Uh, did you notice that her makeup was terrible? Like, it made her no, skin look I, awful. I didn't notice that. Because uh, no. like, she's like a very attractive woman, but like, right she looks terrible. Are you trying to cross Jordan right now? <laughs> I, I mean, don't be crossing actress I'm, I'm crossing her makeup artist. But uh, also, DMX's skin doesn't look great i'm not sure if that's just bmx's skin really? has never looked great but like oh. he's got like pockmark well like whiteheads really on his face throughout the film and it was very distracting for me because then i'd be like well if dmx's makeup this bad steven seagal's must also but no mm. he's got perfect sort of one tone this is like my heterosexuality clouding my uh, interpretation of the film but yeah dmx has a really bad skin i, I didn't put dmx's uh, skin under a microscope hmm God, what a wormhole we could go into that. <laughs> thinking. All right, so after that, I think we find out that he's he's a dumb genius. That's not for a bit, is it? Well, no, because uh, Steven Seagal goes and finds Tom Arnold at a yes. strip club, and sure. that's where... And he gets him to dig. Because Tom Arnold is, m- like, sort of Maury, I guess, right? I because uh, Because it's established earlier on that... Uh, he, when Steven Seagal is saving his car from those uh, from those gang members, two of them look like twins. Tom Rollins says, you guys look like twins. Is that racist to say? Anyways, if you guys ever sleep with the same woman, call me. You can be on my show or whatever. 
Um, How did I not write that fucking line? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Tom Arnold delivered it and just sounded like pud. I don't yeah. even know what pud is, <laughs> but when Tom Arnold delivers a line, it sounds I'm, like pud. I know where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, also, um, I, I interpreted that whole Tom Arnold getting some people on it as like he was like the local sort of uh, news hound type. Sure. And I feel like he had a very stirred up base of like just like weirdos. And I feel like there's a weird Venn diagram of like weirdos and a desire to want to like have like little soldier of fortune projects, you know? That, yeah, no. Uh, and I uh, picture like yeah. it was like those kind of guys you're yeah. sending after them, yeah. like just like, you know. Oh, sweet! Something to get yeah, out the couch, uh, you know. Segal insinuating that uh, there's some uh, seedy dirt to be dug. That he's like, I'm fucking on this shit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. he was kind of like a dopey guy with like some yeah. project who likes to fancy himself. With yeah, it, it's kind of like like Segal uh, how to win friends and influencing people. Uh, Tom Arnold, where it's kind of like he's throwing down a challenge, where it's just like if you really want to show me that you're down with this shit, you're gonna do it. Yeah. Yeah, he really duped that Tom Arnold. Yeah, just like Roseanne. <laughs> I mean, that was well, that's one the of the way. only things that I liked at the <laughs> end of his, the end of the film, where it's just him and Anthony Anderson. And Anthony Anderson likes ask Tom Arnold ah, if he nice. likes uh, big women, and Tom Arnold says, "I tried it once, didn't like it." Oh, <laughs> something like that. I encourage this. We shouldn't promote a different uh, podcast, but um, the one episode of the the Norm Macdonald video podcast that I really liked had Roseanne on it. And she tells a great story about Tom Arnold uh, to paraphrase. Basically they're meeting with a PI and uh, they're both like really eager to find out who's been leaking secrets about Roseanne's personal life to the media. And they said, we found out it's your husband. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Arnold apparently just sat there like just shaking his head. Like he had not heard what had just been said. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's pretty great. Funny uh, Tom Arnold fact, actually. Uh, <laughs> in the Roseanne show, he actually plays two different characters, and think, it's never addressed. I think all Tom Arnold facts are funny <laughs> Tom Arnold facts. What the fuck? The Fair most point. amazing Tom Arnold fact is that he's maintained his status in Hollywood for 30 years. True. Has um, he even been anything since True Lies? Yeah, he was in this. <laughs> but, but, uh, True Lies was before that? Yeah, True Lies is like 93. Oh my god, I'm so old. <laughs> yeah, so Tom Arnold comes back to Steven Seagal and says, yo, my private eyes uh, found out some stuff. Because that's what Tom Arnold is trying to say, is that he's got a whole bunch yeah. of private eyes who are all ex-cops, uh, who sound suspiciously like Steven Seagal have been sort of forced off the force by uh, being too brutal, or whatever it is. Uh, but they, they're effective, and they get things done. And they find out for Tom Arnold that DMX, this entire time, has been playing a software developer who made his name in the dot-com bubble mm. with 999.com. Mm. You could buy anything you wanted for 999. Mm. Genius. <laughs> really the sort of uh, crack marketing that and made the dot-com bubble so laughable in the first place. Is it's Tom Arnold's VO over top of DMX going into his sort of lofty apartment, which is... In that sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, sort of like it's complete concrete and then just really, really bad furniture laid out sort of willy nilly. It's like a prototypical uh, loft space slash startup incubator. Yeah. 
I don't know yeah. if you guys have ever visited Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. Never been to Peterborough. But Never. it is all, it was all, it's all brutalist architecture. It's all Ooh. made out of concrete. And it's all, it's so ugly, but it's coming back into vogue now. I it's love brutalist architecture. Well, I mean, uh, again, it is Detroit. So mm. there's something to be said about the history of Detroit and true sort of grunge. But let's talk about DMX's performance for a second. Was there any time oh, where you boy. thought this guy is playing more than just a heroin dealer? Because maybe his understated sort of I only give six words per scene. Was I, him being like I interpreted him not as a heroin dealer, but as a guy who could barely remember the sentence he was about to say perpetually throughout this movie. It felt like there was like a four to five second pause before like every delivered line of dialogue he said, whether or not it was appropriate within the basic standards of normal human banter or so not. He, he might have been getting high in his own supply. Yeah, I would debate uh, whether or not he was even capable of like being in front of a camera at this point. Like he was so awkward. His screen presence was so like just you know, not ready. I didn't find him that bad. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was just because I guess it depends on how much you read into what he's going for. So, the, is, like, yeah, I guess right. in terms of like, uh, someone defend your boy. Sure, sure. So, someone who's acting is so bad that I can like when they act, I can feel the camera. I can feel like all the you know assistants and PAs standing behind the camera would be like Paul Walker. Like when he delivers a line, like I can feel that this is a movie and that this is take number whatever. But like with DMX, like it, you know, it wasn't like uh, Lawrence Olivier, but like I like I didn't get a sense that it was so bad that like this I, is a high school drama project. I want to paraphrase. He wasn't necessarily bad at like portraying a character. He was bad at just getting the words out. Like mm. in just a reasonable amount of time in which I, every time he did that, I had this static sh thought of like in the real room in which they're shooting the scene, the director is going, you're going to need to deliver the line now. Like hmm. the way he looked in between, he was like looking around the set as if he thought like, if I do this, he thought like a dramatic pause was like meant to be used every single time or something. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I think it was maybe I was going to the film expecting DMX to be brutal. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that, like, there was still a willing suspension of disbelief kind of thing going on. Sure. But, like, I was watching the film and I was like, I wasn't like, oh, yeah, this is a movie. Sure. And there are lights around him and whatever, whatever. So, yeah. That being said, I go into every Steven Seagal film expecting him to be the worst actor. So if he's not the worst actor, uh, it becomes pretty normal. It says something. It says yeah. something. But we need to get into the third act because we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we've gotten to like, I don't know, minute 45 of this film. Oh, boy. Um, we do this all the time. Uh, it's just yeah. so, par for the course. I forget that there's a scene where uh, the crooked cops want to get him. Is there anything that we want to address before that? Or No, let's go, no, straight, we to go straight to that. One funny detail about that is they run him off the road and they run up to the side of his car and uh, the guy smashes the window. And instead of just turning away so the safety glass doesn't get in his eye, he actually puts his mm. hand in front of his face and, like, 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like a toddler, like, who doesn't know how to use their body. It's a cop who's gone through two weekends yeah. of safety yeah. school. It's just like, 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 uh, like it, it was and, the weirdest detail. It was and, so strange. And related uh, actions that look like a toddler doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're nowhere going with this, Riley. No, uh, I was just going to say something. I bet they didn't have... Uh, like some sort of breakaway glass that was for movie sets. And it was like it was real a, glass. Uh, it was real glass and it was a real stunt actor. And so he didn't want to damage his eyes or whatever. So he <laughs> did it that way. They didn't think that he, they'd use, because that's such an odd shot to get. Like they could, yeah, that was a uh, weirdest thing I've ever over seen. Over the shoulder for him to yeah. break that glass. But they go it so he's coming face on to the camera and breaking the glass in front of it. Yeah. Anyways, Dylan, continue. So yeah, toddler moves. Okay. My favorite bullet time in this entire movie <laughs> Steven Seagal grabbing the gun. Uh, with his feet flipping them to his hand, uh, it looks like a three-year-old doing it with like a piece of Lego. Like he is so <laughs> awkward at it. It yeah. looks like he barely caught the yeah. thing. It looks like it was like take twenty-four, yeah. and then we're just like, See, finally, Seagal we caught got this one. Let's go it, home. <laughs> the, and this is kind of like building off what I was saying about like like Seagal's whole like physicality as kind of like an old-school alpha guy. Like I mean, being six-five, that's not a practical thing to kick ass. Like if you look at like mixed martial arts, uh, combat sports, like uh, aside from uh, like heavyweight boxers who are hugging each other for like fucking 11 rounds, like six, five, it's like, it's like a lot of bullshit that's going to get in the way. And I mean, something like this is a good example. Yeah. Like um, imagine how fucking long his legs are. Like, I mean, how's he going to pick something up? Like, it's just like, it's unnecessary like body to deal with. And I mean, something like this is a perfect example where it's just like, if you want to be like really swift and nimble and you want to fucking fuck motherfuckers up, you don't want to be six five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've addressed Michael's Napoleon complex. Whoa. <laughs> Good follow up. Uh, yeah, I just thought that that was really funny because it was the sort of move where uh, this is five, six calling out six, five. Yeah. He was a he was a five a six fiver trying to pull off a five sixer. It didn't work out. Um, yeah, but I think it also was as you were kind of alluding to, but also uh, I noticed as well, which is that this idea that he isn't this Adonis, he isn't the like like immaculate physical specimen in this movie, and it was like kind of a, almost um, charmingly clumsy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things, like, imagine if you had developed this sort of idea of Seagal over two or three more films, you probably would have honed in on something that he could have cruised into almost like a Nicolas Cage sort of way. Like, you would have had this little kernel of an idea that you could call upon him anytime you needed more of a character actor sort of thing. But it still, it would have served him a lot better than what he ended up doing. Yeah. But uh, what we have instead is Steven Seagal goes to DMX's loft. And the plot twist is unveiled here? Yeah. Well, we, we, already, we already kind of covered that, right? Did we? Well, I mean, we haven't covered, covered the exact scene in which oh. this is revealed. Uh, so he goes to his house, yes. pad, whatever. Um, and the whole, like, everyone who he's met in all the previous scenes are there. Eva Mendez, Anthony Anderson, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, it is at this point that I've, if, I really have a hard time remembering specifically how it's delivered but he reveals that he is not a uh, criminal underlord who's ruling through like overlord overlord <laughs> operating through a uh, net gains through some web business. But he's actually like, I almost want to call it like Julian a covert, Assange, like a covert political <laughs> activist who's trying to shed a light on excessive and 
uh, malpractice, excessive force and malpractice use of force like in the police. He's like uh, the Nelson Mandela of the ghetto. Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> can you hear the scissors of the cut marks going in? Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, real showstopper. Am I right? <laughs> Um, uh, and even Mendez is revealed to be like a really great, uh, what do you call it? Adobe admin assistant. Oh, I was going to say the, the, the editor she's using for to piece all together her. Oh, right. Yeah. She's, yeah. Uh, the real she's blue. got two or three monitors set up. Real the blue chip admin assistant. <laughs> it, no, you're right. Yeah, she is sure. She's the editor. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I'm kind of obsessed with this twist in a weird way. Because, again, it's so on accident that it stumbles into this. But it feels, like, weirdly prescient, especially since so many, like, police crimes now are caught through, like, dashboard cam footage and yeah. post on YouTube. And the idea that this guy would have been doing it as, like, a political act many, many years before this was, like, as prevalent an issue in today's society. Or at least hitting the mainstream as much as it, it is. It begs now. the question of would we have the Black Lives Matter movement without exit wounds? We're throwing it out there. We're seriously Seagal, folks. Um, <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, so I think one of the, I mean, it is true that they hit on something, but the way they hit on it is even Mendez says, look at all this footage we have of everyone. And she's like, look at how we got it. And she just sort of runs her hand over a table of a, of a whole bunch of equipment. Of a bunch in, of garbage. Including <laughs> like non-digital SLRs. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. also a bunch of, the sort of big thing that's supposed to catch everybody uh, up is she just holds up like a cord and it looks like the end of like an iPhone charger. Yeah. And says, look, we can record you right now. <laughs> and so the big twist of the movie is Steven Seagal has been going up against DMX, who has the ability to record everything from every angle at all times. Mm. Yes. Steven Seagal has essentially been going up against a very observant God. Yeah. Mm. I want to be 100 percent clear. Like, I'm not meaning to suggest that this movie was, like, somehow, uh, like, forecasting the future in the way, like, something like Network does, where, like, that's, like, an actual, like, built upon I'm idea. mad as hell that you would say it's not as good as Network. Furthermore, uh, I think that it basically stumbles into this kind of uh, coincidental uh, social issue that is way more prescient now than it was back then, mm. and it kind of feels like... It feels stupid within the context of this movie. It feels kind of brilliant with the lens of 2017 on now. It's true. Like yeah, the whole footage of Steven Seagal as filmed by uh, Eva Mendez locking up Anthony Anderson to the grill of his truck is exactly what we see coming out on the news. Exactly. Every day. It's exactly. Crazy. It's amazing how just just totally coincidental. We haven't watched this movie now. And this movie had this content in mm. it. And especially since, again, I go back to the Eva Mendez scene in which that was like the one tip of the hat that really stood out to me, which was her totally non sequitur line at that point in the movie about the like sort of breaking the fourth wall as to how corrupt Seagal is to mm. all of us here. So uh, Eva Mendez reveals that not only is Seagal a little bit corrupt, by bending the rules, but like all of his squad mates in his new precinct are incredibly corrupt by trying to sell. How's it? They're trying to sell heroin, heroin, heroin. Uh, by way of shipping it through 
liquid heroin that is then infused into t-shirts. Yeah, t-shirts. Oh, then this is another. Does sealed. that work? Can anyone? No, it doesn't. No. Work. Okay, this is <laughs> another. They should have Googled it. It doesn't work. That's another question uh, that I'm like. It's so, so stupid. A plot. It was the same semi-automatic thing where. I'm embarrassed to ask the question. That's so stupid it seems. No, the do- the dogs can smell through a plastic bag. They can smell through coffee grounds. Yeah, it's stupid. I it really wanted to see a scene of some heroin addict trying to wring out a shirt <laughs> to get heroin because I oh. thought that would have been beautiful. That could I'm just be, so confused as to like too. how did it go in the shirt? I thought it was maybe like it seemed to have like that polystyrene lettering that they sometimes have, and I thought so it would have been like a lettering. Wow, you yeah. like really off or overthought this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I never like, even. I didn't of that. understand. Like that's it, actually kind of brilliant. That might have worked. Liquidate the <laughs> and shirt. I, mean, I don't get it. We're not even dealing with the fact that five police officers are able to afford a uh, state-of-the-art drug anti-detection. Well, stuff. they just employ a whole bunch of like a whole cartel. Yeah, in like yeah, like it's a sweatshop. Yeah, operating. It, that's a good point. Like the the it, like exactly how the sweatshop turned into essentially a laboratory that could somehow. Uh, Does this Seagal it, movie have a gaping plot hole? Like the sweatshop didn't what? seem super legal to begin with. Yeah. Why would you attract well, more I, I should, another heroin thing we dipping? Should, we should probably address. Uh, maybe I'm just a fucking idiot, but the whole Michael Jai White thing as a bad guy, I was surprised. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, it's it's it's. Only, I was fooled. I almost say it's like not. It's it's not embarrassing to admit that because. The level of intrigue in most Steven Seagal characters, there had not been any twists up till this point. Sure, sure. Good characters were good. Sure. Bad characters were bad. Yeah. So for there to be an actual legitimate twist, yeah, um, yeah that's that's admitted to fall for. Yeah. However, if I were, say, let's say I'm just watching an action movie now, I haven't been thinking about Steven, Steven Seagal at all, uh, I would have saw that plot twist coming a mile away because he's so nice. And there's no, he looks like all the other Roid Rages guys who are all in the. I time. think it's the Muhammad Ali thing that fooled me. Ooh. No bad, no bad guy would talk about Ali like that. All Ali, right. can, we get to the, can we get to the Deus Ex Machina? Of yes. This film? Do it. Uh, so Seagal and DMX learn that the cops are going to be doing it, or they're going to be meeting up with DMX to do the drug deal, and yes. Seagal's going to catch him in the act. Seagal knows the only man he can trust. Is his old precinct captain who cast him out of his own precinct yeah. for embarrassing the vice president? Let's not forget that part. Yes, at the beginning of the film, which never pays off. One should note, and also this police chief that kicked him off the force, I don't think really made any appearance whatsoever in Act yeah. Two of this movie. And also, as with any Seagal film, we need to make it clear: fat middle-aged white guy. Oh yeah, it, you I know the subtext you, is you that know he's something's impotent. up. When they're white and they're middle aged, they're they're skewed. Yeah. This, it's, this man is no Brian Cox, though. No, he's no Brian. God, I miss Brian Cox in this oh, movie. God. To have one Brian Cox performance in this movie. To have Brian Cox trying to render out some heroin from a t shirt would have made this movie for me. Oh, of course. Um, anyways, uh so his old police <laughs> captain turns out to be the guy who's running this whole thing. Yes. Of course, Michael Jai White couldn't be running it. Yes. He's also, that is also, for as absurd as the Michael Jai White plot twist was, uh, that was even more stupid. Like, that was just like, yeah. of course he's going to turn on him because that's the most easy, dumb twist you could do. Yeah, and I mean, another thing is that, like, like to have the 
mastermind being a character who you've really only seen sitting in a seat in his dumb ass. He was in three pop- scenes, yeah. period. Yeah. The two, the scene where he pisses him off because he realizes they the president's yeah. speech, the one where he kicks him off the force, and that scene right yeah. there. It's, it's like, like the, the least. Stupid. It's actually kind of glimmer, Manny. Yeah. yeah. It's like the least interesting, like, boogeyman you know like he's the evil genius behind mm-hmm. all this it's but even like, the worst even worse than that is the save that happens afterwards which is the other guys from the force from his old precinct come yeah, and yeah. save the day yeah yeah oh what is that yeah <laughs> oh actually another scene uh that uh comes right before this is seagal going to isaiah washington's house to get him to come to the final showdown and Isaiah Washington answers the door shirtless, holding his child mm. in this beautiful image of black of fragile masculinity. And he's just like, oh, not all black guys are bad dads. And he's having this conversation with his infant child in his arms. And then his wife or girlfriend or whatever is just like, no, oh, you got to do the right thing. And he's like, here's the baby. And it's just like, okay, we get it. He's a good guy. Yeah, this film's thrown out a lot of odd messages. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, or over trying at selling good messages, I guess. Yeah, mm. I think that that's just something that I've come to expect from Seagal. Yeah, I will also note that, um, you know, we kind of joke around now about how we spend so much time on like the first act and then acts two and three, we kind of hustle through, but like, I feel like that's not so much, it's just indicative of the movies. Like, yeah, he sets up something that just gets so muddied and uh, kind of blow their water, yeah, exactly. And uh, this movie suffers from the exact same thing, unfortunately. Mm. It just got through it further. So, like, normally it's like <laughs> act one's great, act two and three suck. This was like act one and two's great, act three sucks. I will say, though, this last scene, it's pretty impressive. Like, there's a lot of cool moments. Yeah, but it's also just like, I don't know, late late 90s, early 2000s gunplay stuff. Like, it's a dime a dozen kind of stuff. And I mean, a lot of when Steven Seagal and Michael Jai White uh, eventually face off, there's a lot of scenes where you can see everything wriggling in a very rubbery way when it's supposed to be hard and steel. Yeah. So let's get to that weird sword fight. What sure. are they fighting with again? They're fighting with. So I, it looked like. I think it's like a fabric cutting thing. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. when they got like those things, cut, yeah. like big pieces of uh, like construction paper yeah. and stuff. Yeah. One yeah. interesting thing about that fight, it was all improvised on set by the two of them. That yeah. is really rare and really dangerous. Because actually, here's a funny fact. So uh, in uh, kind of kung fu martial arts type films, you know the way a lot of times we're fighting and they're making noises like, ha, 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 ha. It's actually to give the other person cues for what is going to happen to make sure they don't poke them in the eye. That's true. Interesting. So, I mean, the idea about improvising a scene, even with rubber stuff, Mm -hmm. is really dangerous. Yeah, like even rubber, like you whack a guy across the face with that stuff. Or even just like bumping into someone. You can elbow them in the face. You're at least... Like, if you get whacked with a rubber sword, you're at least offset yeah. for the day. Or, I mean, even, like, like I wouldn't want to fucking run into Michael Jai White. He's, the guy's fucking carved out of granite. Yeah. Like, it'd fucking mm. break my face. Yeah, no, for sure. And then uh, that sword fight is also weird because um, it, it for as much as this entire movie felt kind of arbitrary, that was, like, the most arbitrary, arbitrary scene of it all. Yeah. Where it's just like, let's just get some swords in there. Yeah. And it was almost like, you know what? Fine, get the swords in there. Like, I don't even... It was almost... It kind of undercut itself by being so stupidly forced in there. Yeah, no, I agree. And, like, I think, like, I think it came after the scene when 
DMX starts using his shotgun as like, oh yeah, we have to address that. <laughs> that was hilarious. Okay. And then him hiding in the uh, this is so like, oh, and he ties disjointed his belt to at this point. But yeah, he ties his belt to a uh, shotgun, and uh, he's so literally. You, you know what? They actually stole that from a Chaiyun Fat film. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, because yeah, that seemed innovative. I mean, mm-hmm. that wouldn't work. No, of it's, course it wouldn't work. At all. The kickback on the gun, I'm assuming, is problem number one. I mean, it's, it, like, just spin backwards. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Like, first of all, like, like the, the like the, the the number of pounds required to pull back a yeah. trigger, unless you have it, the trigger pull set insanely light. There's yeah. no way that throwing it up in the air would actually and yanking it with discharge the, belt. Yeah. the gun. Like it's impossible. Well, I think the idea wasn't it was going up by throwing it in the air. It's like you yank on the belt hard enough right. to pull the trigger. Yeah. But yeah, that seems really unlikely. And then on top of that, the fact that I mean, I know you can hide behind bags and like not like they set up sandbags or nowhere. Yeah. But like why would you? That, but also like these are bags of flour, and these guys are firing. Are they flour? Like, I thought they were pigment. Regardless, it's not sand. It's like something else. And they're firing like literally like 500 rounds into the side. Yeah. He must have gotten hit by one. Like, like that, that, yeah, that whole scene I found was really stupid because it's like, like, you know, the guy is coming in to get you. Why not stand behind the door and fucking blow his head off when he walks in? Why would you yeah. hide? You've got yeah. the drop on him. He's running in like a mm. fucking idiot. I'm going to fucking kill you. Blow him away. You got a fucking shotgun. And then on top of that, like then multiple henchmen go into this room yeah. and he just pulls the same stunt over and over again. Yeah. And you'd figure like after he shoots guy number two, the other three henchmen would all just go around the corner of the fucking barricade. Yeah. Like that was actually one of my favorite moments of the film where <laughs> the same tactic worked multiple times. Yeah. It's something yeah. you never it's, see. Yeah. In... This fucking dumbass is hiding in his fucking stack of fucking bags. Let's chill out here and let's light the room on fire. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah, it worked on me on or didn't work on me on the two levels of like, yeah. I feel like they could have shot him just because of the number of rounds they fired in that set of bags. Yeah. And two, you're so stupid. He's like, it wasn't like a weird corridor he fell into. He's just around a corner yeah. in the room. Yeah. Or like, let's just fucking lock the door and walk off and kill everyone else. We'll deal with this dumbass later. Yeah. Um. But anyways. Again, let's. Get to the end of this fucking thing. Yeah. Jesus Christ. This was a long one, even for Seagal. For Seagal Sanders, this was long. This was an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. I didn't want it to end. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not even fucking joking. This is the first film we've watched where I was just like, I saw like, like that I was watching this for like an hour and 50 minutes and I was just like, I want more. <laughs> like the, 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 the dot com thing. I was like, that fucking sucked. But everything else, I was just like, I'm on board. You know? All right. So we've uh, tipped our hat to Michael's interpretation. So like what happens at the end? Everything works out well. Uh, Crossing Jordan died. Unfortunately, we sort of glanced over that part. What? She died? Oh, yeah. The car crashed. And he just leaves her. Yeah. He just runs off. Yeah. Jordan crossed over. So let's keep going. (laughs) 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 Uh, One funny thing about that scene is that we see a car crash earlier in the film involving Seagal and we have airbags. She's mm. in what? A Land Rover? And it doesn't have an airbag? Just yeah. shows how much of a badass she is. Yeah. Um, but sexist almost. <laughs> yeah. Those Lady sexist. cars don't have airbags. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, Nero. one thing we didn't talk about in this sort of like last uh, gun battle scene is that, uh, like, we actually do see Sagal get injured. He's he shot in the back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But uh, he's got his Kevlar vest on. Yeah. And uh, say, Isaiah says, uh, oh, it didn't go through. So he's immediately okay. Yeah. Duh. Thanks to the exit wound. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. Let's get to Tom Arnold and Anthony Anderson oh. just riffing at the end of this. Okay. So good. Because the rest of this movie is. That's, oh, uh, we'll just type the last scene, which is that uh, uh, he goes back. He, there's like a reunion scene in the anger management place oh, in which so they'll good. just sort of like. Uh, that seems to be Seagal's weird, like, you know, last hurrah, which is that I felt like that was kind of charming because normally he like has to be like on the most major scale and this felt like very low key and very yeah, kind of like goofy. That's true. Okay. So I mentioned that now let's get back to this crazy Anthony Anderson, Tom Arnold mad living, which I think was arguably the most entertaining part of this movie. I chuckled through the entirety of this. If anything, because they had a playful banter and it didn't just feel like line prompts every single goddamn time. Yeah. Mm. Industry speak. They, yeah, it sounded like they just took the best bits of, like they gave them an hour or something like that. They they were just riffing. Yeah, They were. It almost felt like they realized like halfway through shoot, oh shit, Anthony Anderson and Tom Arnold don't actually have any scenes together within the logical plot of this movie. Uh, let's just put in this dumb outtake scene at the end where they interject. Like someone I felt had the foresight to just get those two together. Yeah. Yeah, because the setup for them being on that show is that he's been injured and he's like, would you like to do a show about you getting injured? Yeah, it's a ridiculous setup. And Which it's really the pointless. most titillating subject. But then he turns into the regular co-host and their chemistry is the best of anybody in this film. <laughs> And it's oh, also totally. and it's also funny that they tried to work in, like you said, the continuity in the movie into yeah. this last scene because they totally break their characters of like who they are in the movie yeah. and they just become themselves riffing off each yeah. other. And like it would have been just fine as just an outtake scene, but the fact that they tied it in the movie gives me just another reason to roll my eyes at the movie. But that scene made me like the two of them, like just as actors so much more i love that i was eating it yeah up. like it made me really like anthony anderson i'll say that because i saw him at his less obnoxious <laughs> mm. well tom arnold is just i don't know he's just too dopey to me i mean it was good oh, at the yeah, end yeah, of that yeah, i'm not gonna to see anthony anderson sort of like show him actually being able to play off people as opposed to oh can you keep riffing off this can you keep going it up and then keeping the worst take or the most obscene take of those things and it's or like at the of end course of this, they can uh, at the end of this, it was just the two of them very, you know, casual going back and forth. It was, uh, it was a lot nicer. It was, yeah. it was almost like the two of them had a podcast. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. as, of course they can, because Anthony Anderson, if they pay him to riff, they're going to pay him to riff. And DMX just was not a comedic partner to bounce off of. Oh my God. X and did not give it to them. X did not give it no. to him. He did not give it to any of us, but specifically Anthony Anderson. And uh, just to see Anthony, it felt like they both kind of like got to exhale in that scene in a weird way. Mm. All right, guys. Would you recommend this film? Oh, completely. 100% for Michael? The most enjoyable Seagal film I've ever seen. Put it on a scale. Doesn't count unless you can arbitrarily rank it. Like yeah, a Seagal on the scale universe. or like a everything scale? What the fuck does that just... I don't know. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, I <laughs> this is our say, first episode, fourth episode. You should know the scale. Yeah, yeah, come on. All right, so I'm gonna give this film. I'm gonna give it an eight. Whoa. Ooh. Well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's, um, I mean, it's definitely the best I've seen. And I'll admit, I kind of wanted to get into this because I thought it would be a bit better. Because I just, I, I hate to say it, but I just went by like the Metacritic score. And I'm like, this is like 30 something as opposed to like teen something. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, it was really goofy. It had a lot of dumb plot holes, but it didn't feel specifically tailored to Steven Seagal's kind of brand of plot holes. Um, But it was also pretty stupid. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to give it like a five and a half. Like, just a little bit over normal. Like, it was entertaining. I didn't feel like that compulsive need to, like, turn it off at any point, <laughs> uh, which I've been getting with a couple of these other ones. Uh, no, this was, like, you know, it's just a good generic action movie that happened to have Steven Skull in it. Yeah. I can't argue with anything. Everything you're saying is true. So. I'm going to give it a six. Uh, it's not as much fun as something like Contract to Kill, where it's just egregiously bad. Mm, interesting. But it's also not, uh, it's, it's brisk. It goes by pretty quick. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, I'll give it that. In terms of sort of like his, like non B movie sort of direct to DVD stuff, I mean, this is probably the best one to sort of go, go out and see, at least that we've seen so far. And Fair I enough. do not go out of my way to watch these. <laughs> like my whole thing is that the reason why I liked it so much is because I was legitimately surprised by it. Like when you suggested let's do exit wounds from the next one, I was like, ah, oh, this is gonna be a funny one. This is gonna be a bad one to right. space out right. good ones. And this ended up being my favorite one so far. No, I looked into it and I was I was very conscious that it seemed to be one of the better of his like really bad ones. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was completely surprised. Yeah. Like Okay, so with that in mind, uh what's next? What do we think? <laughs> The Patriot. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I'm into it. Oh, shit, no. Uh, he's got a new movie coming out next week. Oh, Cartels. Yeah, Cartels. A.K.A. Killing Salazar. Yeah. It was so we originally have to done watch that. Killing Salazar. It's his newest release for 2017. Newest Come release. On, man. And it's also starring uh, the greatest welterweight UFC champion of our time, uh, George Russ St. Pierre. Oh, he's the Canadian last year guy. internationally is Killing Salazar, now just Cartels for the U.S. release. Yeah. Uh, already available for download, mm-hmm. but being released in theaters, I believe, so uh, should be interesting. Sounds like we got a date, fellas. Imagine yeah. going to a theater to see <laughs> like oh in person. God. I literally cannot. Maybe go to like, uh, like Iowa or something. I feel uncomfortable giving him money. I'm not going to lie. 